Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. To Hustlers for a Cause. Today, we're honored to have special guest James McWalter. James is on a mission to decarbonize food supply chains by reducing one gigaton of carbon emissions. The way he'll achieve it? By leveraging high-tech data collection and actionable insights. James is a serial entrepreneur with experience running organizations across the globe and across various industries, including theater, fintech, conversational AI and fitness. James, it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. That was a very nice uh, introduction. Absolutely. You've done a lot in a lot of different spaces, and it seems like you're not even afraid to get your hands dirty to solve a problem. It seems like your career started out as a farmer and a butcher. Yeah, yeah. So I'm from Ireland originally, and I partly grew up there, partly grew up upstate New York in the States. I suppose this kind of running joke, like on the farm with my father, that like we never called out an electrician or anything like that. You know, you did plumbing, you did some wiring, you did all the different bits and pieces. And that, so I was like myself, my brother and the rest of the family that was kind of there from the very beginning. And so as we get along, you know, and you're trying to build different things different parts of a company's life. And it's always the most fun, I guess, when you, you're very hands-on in those first you know, year or two. Yeah. So I guess, so tell me a little bit more there. Like, so starting as a farmer, that's really because it was like a family run operation. And then yeah. what made you decide to step away from that, you know, and move towards uh, what you're doing now? You know, you, you always have like a, a narrative forms, right? Over your own kind of past. And so you kind of like at the time, somewhat of a different, uh, you know, reason to, when you think back on it, we moved back. So we, we had a family farm. It was in the family for about 150 odd years. Uh, it was actually sold last year after those 150 years because there's nobody left the farm in Ireland on that particular farm. And, you know, when we moved back, because we, we emigrated to the States when I was four, we moved back to Ireland when I was 11. We moved back to the family farm, and that was basically what you did as a teenager. There wasn't a lot of local jobs, like this is rural, you know, very countryside Ireland. And so one of the local jobs that was available was being a butcher. And so I ended up doing that just as a part-time thing for nearly four years. And, you know, from basically age 16 to 20, and that was, you know, my my income when I went to university and all this kind of thing. At that time, I didn't love it a lot of it. You know, it, it's a tough life. The culture is very specific, right? And I was like this, you know, American sounding Irish kid talking to all the <laughs> lo local Irish farmer, you know, young lads. And uh, I never really, I just fit in with that. I kind of went through that process. Then I actually was like, oh, I, I was like, oh, I want to do something completely different. And so I actually went to university to become an academic philosopher. So I did my undergrad philosophy and psychology, went to St. Andrews up in Scotland to do my master's. And then I got accepted into a PhD program. And I was going to be a you know, philosophy of language and morality. That was going to be my life. But I was like, ah, you know, let's let's do something else before we go full academia for the next <laughs> you know, 30 years. And so then I started working in tech and I got a job down in London. And uh, that's you know, I suppose that was where the beginning of technology as being the kind of core direction for solving problems, you know, started at that point. Okay. You did a lot in between there, right? So your first thing was so you started up something in like theater space? You know, I was working at this uh, job in London. So I was doing sales, like SaaS software sales uh, in the financial space. 
And one of the guys I, or two of the guys actually went to my undergraduate with in Ireland were, you know, theater writers uh, living in London. And the three of us lived together for most of the five years I was in London. And one of them, Henry, he um, pitched an idea to like start a theater company. And I was like, at the time I was, you know, first time I'd ever had any money. I was like making, you know, decent wage, going out to nice restaurants, like, flying into around Europe as part of my job, but it was, you know, a bit soulless to be perfectly honest. And, you know, it was nearly literally in my house. He was like, oh, let's, let's start a theater company. So we started working on that. And basically I was kind of doing all the production, the money. Uh, we got some grants from UK government and a couple other bits and pieces. Some of it was coming out of my personal pocket and we brought a couple of shows uh, and I suppose they culminated in going to the Edinburgh Fringe, which is one of the big kind of theater festivals in the world. And I was basically, I was still working full-time job, but I saved up all my holidays to spend two and a half weeks up in, up in you know, August of, uh, must've been 2010 or 2011. And actually I suppose this is kind of a funny story. I've, I don't think I've told this too many other times, but you know, we had enough money to get the actors and Henry, the, uh, the playwright, uh, like a room for the entire three weeks. Um, but not for me. So like we were basically out of money. And I had one friend up in up in Edinburgh and his name is Peter. And I called Peter. I was like, look, you know, I'm coming up, like I'm going to be there for three weeks. Uh, can I stay with you? And he's like, sure, absolutely. He's like, we've big house, loads of rooms. Peter is a Catholic priest. And that was the parochial house for the local church in, in, in this particular suburb of, of uh, Edinburgh. And so it was basically it was living with these to himself and two other priests for those three weeks and like telling them all about the theater and like all this kind of thing. And that was, and then he's actually now a bishop in, uh, in Australia. He's really kind of moved on in the world, so. Wow, so tell me a little bit more about what brings you here today and what made you uh, decide to make this jump into the clean tech space. You, you mentioned all the different bits and pieces. As was thematically, if I think about, you know, the fitness piece and, you know, the, the chatbot piece were, you know, were acquired by Google and like there was all these kind of fun things, startup world things and i always enjoyed building organizations getting you know the first thing built and all this kind of thing but i was never really that passionate about the problems we were solving i was like oh you know this is a cool group of people trying to do some sort of cool problem solving but the problem itself was never like oh this is a thing i want to kind of work on and yep. so i kind of got to the point about a year ago where i was like all right you know i'm 36 now uh so you know pretty young but like there's only four maybe big career moves you can make at this point, right? Like you're, you're starting to be able to count them on one hand. And so I started reading a lot of books in uh, 2019 about, you know, some of the big problems. So I was reading a lot about issues around AI. I was reading a lot about climate and a few other things. And what I tried to start doing was actually internalizing what the these problems really meant, right? And climate was the one that definitely hit me the hardest. And it was, you know, it kind of culminated in this, uh, you know, this flight. I was at a friend's wedding in uh, in Phuket in Thailand. And then we were in uh, Bangkok for New Year's, my wife and a few other friends. And on the flight back, I went to Ireland to see my mom. Uh, this is right after New Year's of uh, 2019 into 2020. And so I was on this long, you know, more than eight hour flight and just thinking a lot about the books I'd read, you know, bit hungover because it's a partying for, for the previous week. And I was kind of getting to a point where I was like, look, you know, nobody I know is working on climate. Um, and in theory, we all believe that climate is this big, you know, existential issue, but like how we really internalized, like what that means. And I realized for myself, like I, I haven't put my money where my mouth is, you know, I hit the little button to offset my emissions or whatever it is, but like, you know, day to day, I'm not really working on what is probably the biggest or one of the biggest problems that anybody that any generation's ever faced. And so then I was like, all right, you know, <laughs> do something about it. And that was the start of it. So in order to tackle the problem, 
you have two things going, right? You have Carbotnik, the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, and Wolfty. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell me a little bit about both and what the focus of each is. Yes, yeah, so Carbotnik, which is the podcast, was a starting point. And so, you know, one of the things that I suppose if I have one thing that I have always tried to develop as my core strength is to like try to systematize as much as possible because I'm very much a believer that uh, systems and structure allows you to have freedom in other parts of your life. And so like I have a very, very, very structured week and uh, I have loads of free time because everything I need to get done gets done. And I've, I feel like I never feel rushed the weekend or anything like that because of the things and structures that we built up. And so I was like, all right, you know, I've, I've been working on market research marketplace. I've been doing all these other things, nothing in clean tech, nothing environmental, nothing in carbon. So how do I make that transition as quickly as possible? And so I kind of, you know, sat down, had a bit of a, you know, think about it. And it was like, okay, I could go work in another company for a year. Right. Probably start more junior because I don't have that skill set like in, in that space or that uh, domain knowledge. Or I could go to back to school, right? I could do like a master's or something, you know, again, at least a year, maybe two, and money and time and effort. Or I could basically just not even try to learn something, just start something from scratch and like just see how it goes. And then, then I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm a big, avid listener of podcasts. So I was like, oh, just go interview 50 people. And I basically used the podcast as a method to just learn tons. And that was, that was basically the, the start. It was like, it was actually mostly for me. And uh, when it started getting a bit of traction and like getting really, really cool guests, it kind of broadened out. And now it's this like kind of fascinating, something I love to do. I actually recorded two episodes of my own like earlier today. So this is the third one today. And like, you just learn so many things, you know? Yeah, I was not a podcaster. I didn't listen to podcasts before starting this podcast. Sure. And then like a mentor challenged me. I was like, you have to do this. And I did it. In- yeah, no, it's, it's amazing how much you can learn by doing this and how many amazing people you get to meet. I quite like that approach, though. Like, sometimes it, you get a better and clearer look, right, if, you, yeah. if you're not kind of engaged. And so, like, I had to, like, unlearn some of the probably bad habits I hear from other podcasts or, or sometimes you even compare yourself to, like, the big, you know, the, the mm-hmm. big kind of players in the game. And that can, like, be intimidating. And I think coming in really fresh is often, like, an advantage. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure that even for you, like switching industries, right? Like that's your strength that you bring as you go into a new industry, right? It's being a disruptor by not being brought up in that industry to begin with, right? Right. You know, I was, I came into it pretty open. So like the first couple of podcasts, I was talking to people about, you know, energy production and all these different things. It took a while, like it took probably about two or three months. And I still had my old job, which I loved and I have a great relationship with everybody there still. But I kind of hit a point, I was like, oh, the random guests who are getting back to me that are in the kind of food and agriculture space, like they're the ones I'm like skipping to those interviews for in a way that, I, you know, I still enjoy the other conversations. Uh, and then also, honestly, like as I'm trying to test different ideas and having research calls on my own, just like cold messaging loads of people on LinkedIn and all these different places. And it was the people in the food supply system who got back to me. And it was, it honestly was like longer than it should have taken, but uh, like it actually took me about a month. And like, again, a conversation with like a, like a mentor to say, you know, that makes complete sense. You grew up on a farm. Like, of course, of course you'd be drawn to that. And it hadn't even really, really like ticked to me in that same, same degree, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Sometimes you just kind of like, you tend to follow along a certain path without even realizing it. But once you recognize it, that's when you can really dial it in and really accelerate it. So tell me a little bit more about like the topics you talk about on Carbotnik. Yeah. So I particularly interested in 
like early stories, right? Like one of the things that I think is a real challenge for people moving into solving this massive problem of climate is the things I felt myself, like how do you start? Like, I mean, it's a new industry and so on. And so when I talk to people who made that transition, they're, you know, they're often founders in the first one to four years of that startup's life. Myself, my producer, we try to get like a good cross-section of people from the very earliest through to people who've, you know, raised some decent money, have got decent traction and, and so on. But, you know, like I really try to dig in, like what was the genesis? Like how messy was those early users? Like how embarrassed were you by the MVP? All those kind of different elements. In essence, try to like lower the kind of polished nature that we all kind of put across about our kind of founding stories, you know, and we're all guilty of this, even as I'm describing my own past, like that's, that's a polished <laughs> version, right? But we're trying to like, trying to get to a kind of greater truth if we can at all to yeah. encourage a new generation to get involved. It's mm-hmm. awesome. And now how does that evolve now that you've learned all these things from your interviews and you started Wolf D? Where do you take that and what's the mission at Wolf D? What kept coming up as I was talking to these people and, and doing my own kind of research outside the podcast was, you know, you have kind of a set of pressure points starting to happen that are related to climate in the food system that basically are positive pressure points in terms of like trying to reduce the amount of carbon across from farming, logistics, all the way up through the food supply chain. And so I was like, oh, this is like interesting. And so, you know, there's actually some pressure here. Some of it driven by regulation, some driven by consumer, a lot of it driven by asset managers at big companies starting to move away from investing in dirty coal and and oil plants and the food industries who are, you know, maybe one or two layers to the left of a coal plant with some of their you know, some of the chemical companies and so on, um, are getting afraid, like getting scared about what's coming down the track for them in terms of divestments. And so they're trying to get out ahead of this by starting to make some commitments. Now, a lot of the commitments are, you know, what's called greenwashing, where you have uh, a commitment that really is is kind of fake, or it's uh, hiding some even worse behavior by that company around the corner. But this is like another version, of, I suppose, of greenwashing, where you know these companies are now actually trying to compete to be what they call sustainable, but like just cleaner, right? Like just less carbon intensive, less damaging to the planet. And so this was like, like this kind of fascinating piece. The other thing that was absolutely like remarkable to me was, you know, our farm. We actually converted to being an organic farm in 1998, and then my mom uh, became head of organic standards for one of the certifying bodies of Ireland. Just kind of somewhat uh, interestingly. And so you had this kind of interesting kind of tension like in growing up between my mom implementing standards for a country and my father implementing them on our small farm. And those things are often in conflict, you know? Mm-hmm. As I started learning about the kind of nature of where the food system is today, something kept coming up, which is this kind of uh, form of farming called regenerative agriculture. And so regenerative agriculture, you know, it's getting hotter, but you know, maybe a lot of your listeners uh, are less familiar. Basically, there's a couple different practices which, if farmers implement these, basically can move from farming being something that produces a lot of carbon into the atmosphere to something that actually sucks it back into the soil and sequesters it into the soil. And I can get into the details of the science of that if you want. But but basically, it has this kind of you know farming in particular has this like remarkable potential to basically have. Uh, food leaving the farmyard at such a l- level of negative carbon that even at, when you add in the shipping and the trucking and all those kind of things, it could still be a potentially a carbon neutral or even carbon negative product. And so this this kind of fact that you have like this low tech form of farming that's that's pretty old way of farming combined with these pressures that you're seeing elsewhere means that like I think the food system is this remarkable place that's going to have a lot of innovation in the next ten years. Yeah, I would love to dive into regenerative agriculture more and also like just uncover 
what is the food supply chain? You know, like what are all the steps that are involved taking this product from like a seed on the farm to our dinner table? Yeah, let's, let's do that one first. There's basically, there's, we'll call them complex supply chains and less complex supply chains. Okay. And the, the less complex supply chain is you have a farmer down the road and like they grow some, you know, carrots and then they go to the farmer's market and you go buy the carrots of them. And like it's, it's the supply chain is basically the, you know, the farmer, they planted their own seed that they grew the previous year. They harvested something and they sell, you know, th those carrots directly to the consumer. That's like 1% of all food, at least in, in the United States. Uh, in developing world countries, it's quite different. But in the United States, it's like 1% of how food is uh, kind of processed and grown. The vast majority, the other 99% roughly, are much more complicated where you have different layers. And so the real start layer, let's start at the farmer. So the farmer is going to plant a seed. That seed is typically coming from a large biotech company. They are then, Monsanto is a very kind of commonly known one in this space. They're then going to add different types of synthetic fertilizer coming from different types of uh, you know, chemical companies. Uh, Monsanto merged with Bayer, who's the largest chemical company in the world. And so then they'll add in herbicides and, and pesticides and so on. They'll use very complicated and complex and amazing machinery, really, that will then you know, plow the fields and operate, uh, you know, grow those vegetables and, or you know, raise that livestock and cattle to a certain degree. When they're ready, they're going to bring that to some sort of centralized hub, right? The classic one, if you think about something like breakfast cereal, is like a grain elevator, right? So this, this old kind of term for uh, kind of a, a grain processor. The farmer will bring their grain to this grain elevator. The grain elevator will pay them on the basis of a price that is like an international price that like is applicable across the entire world. It's a commodity price. Then that grain elevator will sell it to food processor who will sell it to another. Eventually you get to, you know, a general mills or a Kellogg's or one of these kind of very, very large uh, food brand companies who will basically produce a product. Uh, they'll package it, they'll process it, make it branding look beautiful, and then it'll be shipped to a, you know, to a supermarket or whatever it may be. And at that point, the consumer buys it, goes home, eats it. And so from point A, like the seed being bought from the biotech company to it going into your mouth, there could literally be 10 or 15,000 people involved in that, in that process. Wow. Yeah, you never really think about all the steps that are involved. The number of people is a question I wouldn't have even considered to ask you, I think, because I'm so like focused. Probably it's like the, the engineer in me that just focuses on like process, you know? That's interesting. So for the farmer, it ends when they provide their like raw goods to the hub, which is like that elevator processor. Correct. You know, one of the things that keeps coming up, and I talk to tons of farmers now, there's long been this known disconnect between the consumer and the food that they consume, right? A lot of cattle and, and livestock are raised in these very, very like terrible conditions. You know, I, I was I was a butcher growing up, but like, and, and you know, I still eat a certain amount of meat, but the way we raise our meat, like locally yeah. on our own farm was incredibly different to how the vast majority of meat is uh, raised today. And, you know, like I lived in New York a long time. My, my wife is from the Bronx. And like, we have these funny conversations where I'm like, oh, this is, this is actually what it looks like for that animal or for that, you know, that field of wheat or whatever it may be. But equally, so the consumer is quite divorced from the entire process, but equally the farmer themselves are very divorced from the consumer. Like the, the very, very large, you know, this 99% of the food system, farmers are producing incredible amounts of, like, it's actually like a miracle, the amount of food per acre that can be produced today. Um, but they don't really have a connection because of all these different interim steps with the end consumer. And honestly, this shows up in so many kind of weird ways. Like, if you think about the political uh, divides in the United States and how urban and rural are so massive, like, yep. 
you know, I talk to farmers all the time and like they're very, very passionate about a better food system. Um, they'd probably be much more uh, in a different political realm to the average consumer in a city who's consuming their food. But like, because it's such a complex system and it's deliberately opaque, you know, there's actually a, like less of a shared kind of understanding of things than, than there could be. So what about like geography? Does that play a big factor in how much carbon is produced? Think of like the example of like, I think it's almonds farms, right? So mm. They're always noted as like very high on carbon emissions. And I think it's because of the distribution, but this is again, a subject that I know like nothing about. So like is most of the carbon production from distribution and from certain geographies or how does that really uh, work? And how do you decide where to start to sell this? Yeah, so I dove into the research and I was like, look, you know, there's kind of basically four groups, right? You have the farm level, you have um, the transportation piece, you have the processing and packaging, and then you have like the final distribution, right, at the supermarket or the restaurant. And depending on the product, you can get ranges of where the amount of carbon and carbon equivalents, right? Because there's other chemicals that are released that have just as you know, methane, which I think people know from, you know, cow burps and so on and then farts yeah. and so on these days, which also have a kind of big effect. And so depending, something like beef, uh, at least how beef is kind of typically raised, about 95% of that is at the farm level and the ranch level. Even if you add packaging and transportation and, and shipping it to whatever, that's like three to 5% of total carbon is produced. The vast majority is at the, you know, how the animal is raised and so on. You take something like almonds, that's an interesting example. It's closer to about 50% is at the farm level, maybe about 25% is at shipping, and then the other kind of 25% between you know, different, different elements. But even, even almonds, which are, you know, very, or, or you know, some things that are like, you know, we fly bananas all around the world, you know, the yeah. even things that have like air flight, um, often it is the land and the, because uh, even in the developing world, like we burn down a lot of, uh, you know, rainforest to plant yeah. palm oil plantations and so on. Uh, and so the land management is by far like the biggest impactor. And so that's where we started because that that is where the biggest impact is. Interesting. Okay. And so then when you look at land management too, do you also look at like like the palm oil example and the bananas, right, is like a perfect example of where the issue of diverse, like plant diversity, right, with these farms. So how does that come into this? And is, is that a piece of what helps solve the problem? So regenerative agriculture basically is trying to take in more of an, like an ecosystem approach to raising plants in general. And so, you know, if you think about like, uh, you know, a monocrop like a monoculture, right? You know, you just have a big old field of bananas or you just have a big old field of corn or whatever it may be. When you do that, you do a couple things. First of all, you make it very, very easy for pests to, to find it, right? It's like, oh, I'm something that likes eating corn. Here's a ton of it. I'm going to just go and have a great old time. And because, because of that, you have to add in loads of pesticides and all these kind of things because you're just making it very, very easy. That's one aspect. What regenerative tries to do is break up the kind of monoculture in various ways. So the first is, you'll plant what they call cover crops. And so you'll plant your, your corn and then you'll plant something else next to it, like alfalfa or clover or all these different kind of positive things. And what that does, it does a couple of things. So first of all, it makes it a more closer to a habitat, right? Like there's multiple things happening. You're planting things that actually can sometimes cover the ground in a way that prevents weeds. And so you can dramatically like cut your herbicide bill. You can also plant cover crops that you know, help uh, deter, you know, pests. So it massively cuts your pesticide bill. And sometimes even you can plant cover crops that are crops in the, their own right. So you can actually harvest them, right? So alfalfa can be a hay that you, you know, feed goats with or something. And so that's one big piece. The other big piece is you just have to stop plowing. You know, we, I, we grew up plowing. It's actually the plowing championships is a cultural kind of, uh, you know, massive element of, of Irish culture. But <laughs> 
plowing is like just about the worst thing you can do because you're basically taking this beautiful soil ecosystem and there's a massively complex ecosystem within the soil itself, turning it upside down, exposing it to the air. And then basically all that, those microorganisms, all that plant matter is just rotting. And then it's actually releasing that carbon into the air. And so if you can plant cover crops, which, you know, create this more habitat approach and you don't till, it's called no-till, basically not plowing, those two things combined with some other kind of livestock management elements are the three main principles of regenerative ag. Okay, so now I know I like looked at the site a little bit and you have this concept too of like data mining and data collection as a core part of how you identify where you have like carbon emissions happening. So Mm -hmm. how does that come into play here? And what kinds of technology do you bring to the table to to make that happen? When we're trying to, and by we, it's a small team, just me and a couple other kind of friends who are kind of up and running. So I I use we, but I I don't want to imply we're, you know, some big, big, big group yet. Um, But when we kind of think about, you know, the problem, you know, once we identified where all this was sitting, we then started talking to tons and tons of farmers and say, hey, these practices, they're well-proven, they're on, they're already on, you know, probably a million or two acres in the United States. Um, there's tons of money being poured into the system. General Mills is committed to 10 million acres of, of regenerative ag in the next five years and so on. You know, why, A, you're already doing these practices. Why did you adopt them? And B, if you're not, like, why didn't you? Uh, and why aren't you adopting them? And so the farmers sold us some fascinating things. So the first is some of it was money. It's like, I don't know, this is going to potentially you know, dip in yield. So sometimes you have a dip in, you know, you can grow less on a given acre for a year or two until your soil utility recovers. And then you can, uh, you know, start to kind of go back up again. And so they're like, well, I can't really afford that dip in yield, which is completely fair. Others were saying things like, we don't know how to do this, right? Like this is this is just like, there's an educational gap because I've given some very general kind of outline of this, but you know, when you're getting to specific farms, specific, you know, climates, a North Dakota farmer is going to do a very different thing to somebody in Iowa and so on. So it's, a, it's an educational piece. And the third piece is cultural because it's more like an eco- ecosystem. This type of farming looks aesthetically less pleasing to a lot of farmers who are raised on, you know, very, very straight lines and this kind of beautiful type 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 approach. Similarly, you know, it, it, well, think about a forest, right? Like a planted forest, very, very straight lines. And aesthetically, those look ugly to us, right? Compared to a normal forest that's like all over the place. In farming, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, you see these straight lines. That seems like the natural state of affairs. And you see this more habitat-based approach. It's like, oh, this, this looks like somebody's just being lazy. And I've heard those words like lazy, ugly, terrible. My father would be embarrassed. Like I've heard all these things from farmers. And so we're trying to figure out a way, like how can you nudge farmers who have these three pressures, like educational, so there's a knowledge gap, financial, there's a financial access gap, and a cultural, the cultural gap in ways so that they adopt these practices on mass timelines that we have to like hit for, from a climate point of view. And so, you know, I added this kind of background in this chatbot startup. And so we started playing around with SMS chatbots as a way to kind of reach farmers quickly. They don't have to download an app. They can just be kind of message and so on. So that was like the first piece. You know, one aspect of that that we're exploring on the cultural side is having farmers text farmers and us just kind of sitting behind the scenes so they can share knowledge and so on. And basically what we're trying to find out in those conversations is how they're practicing today so we can get a baseline of like the current practice. So are they, you know, doing no-till or not, for example. Once they've given us that piece of information, there's so much information in an SMS, like geotags and all this kind of thing. We're then trying to use satellite imagery to then detect 
was the farmer accurate, right? Because there's a huge amount of work that has to be done for when farmers uh, certify for these practices. That is a huge kind of blocker as well, but that, that hits all those three things, right? Uh, financial, cultural, and educational. And so by trying to make the verification piece just super simple, like we can do it without the farmer even, you know, they know we're doing it, like but they don't have to like send us a load of information. What we're trying to do with this is dramatically decrease the amount of work it takes for a farmer uh, to be verified. And the final piece is once we have enough information about the verification and what they're doing, we can send them just an SMS back and say, hey, it makes sense like February you know, 19th, 2021, it would make sense if you to best sequester carbon in your soil to plant alfalfa. Like that would be the most you know, sensible thing, I guess, based on all the other farmers we're working with and give that recommendation so they can start implementing the practice. So that's, that's the current setup. Um, yeah, any, 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 I love any questions on any of that because I know there's a lot there. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I don't even know where to go. Like, I'm so like intrigued. And so like, do you see a future where you're actually bringing like technology into like the soil or on the field that is actually like collecting data about how that field is performing and how like, at what granularity can recommendations be provided to help a farm optimize its like carbon neutrality? Yeah, so it's interesting. So like farming right now has become a pretty sophisticated from a technology point of view, right? So there are tons of sensors. Farmers have been using drones. We're the first adopters of drones, satellite imagery. Like it sounds fancy in some of the industries, like it's old hat for farmers because they've been using it for, you know, productivity, like, you know, and yield analytics for at least the last four or five years. The farmer themselves generally has a pretty good, especially, and we're generally talking about larger farmers because we're yeah. most interested on our side in, in like hitting scale from a kind of carbon point of view. And so there's a lot yeah. of really great 50 acre farms out there, but realistically the, you know, the vast majority of the carbon issues are coming from the bigger farms. And so those bigger farms have a very, very sophisticated, typically sophisticated understanding of their fields, what's going on from a yield and application of fertilizer and all these kind of things point of view. They typically don't on anything around you know, carbon and the practices that affect carbon. And so there are, you know, soil sampling is part of, you know, like a lot of these farmers approaches. And so that'll give you a very, very detailed example. And there's actually some really cool pieces of innovation in here. Like we're not looking to build something that's going to be like at the cutting edge, you know, of, of, of soil sampling. Um, but there's a friend of mine, he founded a company called Yardstick with a couple of other very smart people. And um, they're developing like a drill where you can just like drill it into the ground. And it'll give you an immediate like organic soil sample. Uh, and they're about to start field tests in the next couple of months. Uh, and then there's other cool companies. There's a company called Cloud Agronomics. They're using pure satellite to estimate like soil organic carbon going down about a, a foot. And they're out testing some of their models at the moment. And so there's a lot of like cool things happening. But what we're trying to do is not just take the as just the pure measurement, but try to get that back into a recommendation. And you mentioned yeah. this like the, the the granularity of recommendation. We'd like to be able to get it down to about 100 acres. That would be like a reasonable, actionable number, um, but not too narrow either. Thanks for listening to the first episode in this two-part series. Join us next time to hear how James is changing the world and what you can do to get involved. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. See you next time on Hustlers for a Cause. Until then, keep hustling.